Welcome to the Valleycast, everybody. We have a very special episode for you this week. It's just me. I'm giving the rest of the dudes a break because I got so excited about a new docu-series available on Peacock right now that just wrapped up. It's called Paul T. Goldman. And so this episode, believe it or not, we have a belch that's coming right there. It is. Okay. Uh, Jason Walliner, ladies and gentlemen, is the director of Paul T. Goldman. He directed Borat's subsequent movie film. He's directed other things like Parks and Rec, Last Man uh, on Earth, a bunch of other stuff that I can't think of off the top of my head. Uh, and we talk about Paul T. Goldman, and we talk about what this process was like. If you're unfamiliar with Paul T. Goldman, there will be spoilers in this episode. So it's up to you whether or not you want to watch it, whether or not you want to hear about it beforehand. I think um, this is a fun interview, and Jason is awesome, and he's clearly a very clever person, and I think a very kind person uh and so i think that it's worth listening to at the same time you should go watch the documentary series so uh i hope you do and at any rate i hope you enjoy this chat with jason and we'll be back next week with our regularly scheduled programming this has been the intro part of the valley cast um don't feel like watching movies so i'll watch people guess them instead i don't know how it goes i think it starts with your Oh, folks, we are here with Jason, and I meant to ask you right before we recorded, how do you say your last name? <laughs> I think it's Walliner. Okay. You think, yeah. Is how I've always said yeah, yeah, we'll stick with that. Um, could you just give us uh, some of your background and let our listeners know? They're used to three to four crazy, insane people uh, that they know very well shouting at each other. So now it's going to be fewer people. Hopefully we can still <laughs> shout at each other. But what's your, where are you from and how did you get to where you are? I'm sure I'll go through some of your like credits and stuff prior to, you know, in the intro. But sure. uh, yeah, let people know because it's uh, very interesting. Oh, uh, I'm from New York originally. I'm a director and sometimes writer. Um, I work, I've been working mostly on comedy things. I've worked on shows that people have heard of. Um, uh, early on, I did a show called Parks and Recreation. I worked on the show Last Man on Earth. Um, I guess my biggest thing that I was involved with was I directed uh, the second Borat movie that came out a couple years ago. And... Uh, yeah, so I've just I've been I've been lucky enough to be working for uh, I don't know, fourteen years or something now. Uh, no, more, maybe more, fifteen. I started out with a show uh, on MTV called Human Giant that was like a sketch comedy show with a few friends yeah. of mine, and uh, it was yeah, it just kind of kept kept going. Um, you're you're doing this like crazy genre. What, how, do you mind if I ask how old you are? Oh sure, I'm 42. Okay, great. All right, I'm I'm all right. You seem like a young, sprightly person, and you also seem like you haven't been like uh, bogged you. down by um, Hollywood yet, which uh, is pretty impressive. Oh, I've been very very bogged down. <laughs> I've had my share of bogged down, but yeah. Uh, speaking <laughs> of, know, uh, you just keep keep going. Speaking of that, so for the past yeah couple of weeks, I've tried to explain to people that they should watch Paul T. Goldman, and when they've asked like uh, absolutely I'm, I'm like a um evangel evangelist preacher for the uh the show but when they ask what it's about i'm like i don't want to describe what it's about because i want people to go in and feel uh be completely new to it but my understanding is you've been working on this for like a decade and you've had to yeah, pitch I, it. yeah yeah can yeah. you walk me through what that is like and how you didn't go absolutely out of your mind 
You know, part of the reason it probably took a decade to finish was um, it is so hard to describe, which is not the recipe for a hit show, <laughs> usually, uh, of something that uh, is almost, is, it's just very convoluted. And if you haven't seen, I think once you see it, you get it right away. Um, it's not, I don't think, very confusing to watch, but to describe it, you know, it's a it's a documentary project or a docu-series about a real person, a real guy who calls himself Paul T. Goldman. And his uh, qu- quest, decade and a half long quest to bring down the crime ring uh, that, that he, um, that, a crime ring run by his ex-wife, his second ex-wife, that may or may not exist. And, um, and, and that's kind of the shortest uh, <laughs> version of it, you know. And then when you actually watch the show, you, you see, you know, Paul, Paul wrote a book about his, his experience, his story. He wrote a screenplay based on the book. He contacted a lot of directors. I responded. And we filmed scenes from his screenplay and then sequels he wrote and all this other stuff he wrote. And we also filmed behind the scenes and kind of examined the process of making the show. We also talked to the real people involved. We also have a lot of interviews with Paul. So it's this kind of like sprawling documentary that's really just every angle on this guy that I I find extremely interesting and, and compelling. Yeah, the um the whole format of like document I watch a lot my wife and I watch basically any documentary that that comes out especially ones that are like this and not ones that are about like really horrific uh sad uh, things that happen but the most uncomfortable part is <laughs> sure. always the reenactments that people do uh during documentaries because they're always so bad the the reenactments that you do in these aren't reenactments they're actual actions like blockbuster scenes from varying genres all the way to like uh spoiler alerts obviously uh cartoons for children and you start to see yes. this whole like ip that paul has developed and you're inserting the guy himself into the role how did you did you have like approval to do like did you sell this project and then start filming or did you just bootstrap this thing as you went along and start showing people these scenes we started shooting just and you know all we could do all we could afford to do before we were you know financially backed by a real place was these interviews the interviews are very cheap to shoot um and so then i had to describe all these other things that you mentioned that i wanted to shoot um Paul had written all that before I met him. He had this plan for this entertainment empire that he wanted to launch before I met him. Uh, And the only thing that he hadn't written yet was, um, I don't want to spoil too much if you haven't watched it, but in the finale, there's a spinoff show he wrote called The Dreamcatchers that he just came up with like right before we shot. And he sent that to me and I was like, oh my God, we have to shoot this. It's so amazing. Um, And so... um, but this was this was 2012. It was before like Marvel stuff. It was before like it was before every or it was not before, but but it was like really before like this very IP driven world we're living in. But he was ahead of the curve on that. He was just like, you gotta build an empire. You gotta have spinoffs. You gotta hit every demo. And so he's like, I'll do you know the Chronicles for my fan base. And but then teens need something. I'll do the Johnny <laughs> Goldman Chronicles. And kids need something. I'll do the the Darling Street Detectives. And so he was really thinking in terms of expanding and franchising and, and yeah, this whole expanded universe um, well before it was kind of the typical way that 
that entertainment was made. Yeah. Um, is and that was just something along the way of doing this for ten years. I it was pretty amazing to watch uh, that happen because he, he was ahead of the curve on that. Yeah, like you were saying, the the first ten minutes of watching it, you get kind of the feel of what you're uh, you're doing here. But when you're when you're it's 2012, and when you're on Twitter, and at that point, 2012. As far as I remember, Twitter at that point was like in its heyday. It was wonderful, and people were tweeting and like getting writing jobs. And it was like you do a funny tweet and it goes viral, and then you're like good to go. And you also get tweets like <laughs> Paul's that I imagine you clicked on it, and I imagine that you saw that he was, as you show in the documentary, sending it to a lot of people, as you do your hustle. And uh, what and that when did you know like i have to work with this guy and this story sounds so insane that i can't i can't let it go i fell in love with the story and him immediately as soon as i saw this video i thought there was something very compelling about him very interesting i spent a few months like kind of quietly watching what he was doing online um also, I didn't know him. I wanted to make sure he wasn't crazy or dangerous or that this story was just too sad. A lot of people online, you, you look deeper, you know, there's like funny, you know, interesting people online. Then you look deeper into it and there's like, it's just too sad to even touch. <laughs> and but the more I looked at him, I was like, oh, no, he's kind of in that sweet spot where there's, you know, a lot of interesting things about his story and him. A lot of it is sad to me, but it's not so sad that I felt like it would just be a bummer. And a lot of it was very funny, and a lot of it was very fascinating, and a lot of it was very disturbing. Um, and it just kind of checked all the boxes. I just, you know, and so then it was when he started publishing the Paul T. Goldman Chronicles saying, well, nothing is happening in real life, so I'm going to, I want to put out, he, basically what he says in the show is what he said. You know, it's all real. He, he was like, I... Everything in Hollywood's a franchise. I, I nothing else was happening, so I knew I had to put out more books. So if I if I wanted to put out more books, I'd have to start making stuff up. And so he never pretended that the chronicles were real. I saw some article this morning that was like, with the chronicles, he fully fell into you know thinking this was real. I was like, no, he didn't. No, he knew he was writing fictional spinoffs. To his, he was very upfront about that. It was still so interesting to me. It was I've never seen anyone do anything like that before of like writing basically autobiographical fan fiction and then selling it on Amazon as like eBooks and, and, and novellas and whatever. And, and then bringing in real people from his life to be characters so that he can, you know, get the girl that got away or, you know, be, be called a hero. It was just like blowing my mind. And so at that point I was like, okay, I gotta, I, I think I know what this is. I need to jump on this and figure this out and see if I can do it. And, and so that was a, you know, later 2012, I think, was when he started putting those out. Yeah, the, uh, his, um, like that article you're saying that, you know, he enters into the fantasy or he become, he's too lost in it. Uh, you kind of walk this fine line uh, throughout the, the documentary where at times it is like, oh, gosh, is this just is this too much or people, is this like encouraging uh, the sort of fantasy? But I, so I study what's called depth psychology uh, when, around the pandemic. I decided I was going to go back to school for fun because uh, I thought it'd be a great idea. Uh -huh. And uh, it was a great idea, but a lot of what depth psychology is about is like how fantasy and the imagination works and how we relate to the outside world. And so when you're seeing, like, when I'm watching Paul 
and you're engaging with his fantasy, my understanding is that actually is like a little more helpful than people give it credit for because it's not like he's not even doing revisionist history. He's doing like revisionist future that doesn't exist yet. And he's um, using his imagination to literally like process what seems like a very painful and sad experience for him. And you see him talk about going from the wimp to the warrior. And like he's he wants to conquer this like big evil kind of amorphous sex trafficking dark thing and then at the end that's when you bring up like sort of the maybe facts or the uh challenging him on on some of the details of his original story and when we were watching it and sorry that this is like a a roundabout question here when we're watching it my wife was like oh why why now why is it just coming up now that he's asking him about these like real things right at the end and i was like well i think actually that's the way to do it because if you go to like therapy a therapist is going to enter into whatever your fantasy is like if you're like oh my uh, girlfriend doesn't is mad at me or my parents hate me they're gonna be like why does that why is that the case what's going on there and it seems like you were just basically doing that throughout the series I don't know if there's a question there, so sorry. That was just a wall of. Oh no, I love what, I I love what you're saying. Everything is entirely right, and and uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, I was fascinated by what he was doing in terms of you know he never thinks that there's a real person named uh, Dan Hardwick who's going to train him to be an action hero. At the same time, he was writing these scenes and you know mentally being in this space where there's like a cool guy telling him. You know, Paul, your efforts are not for nothing. We've been we've been paying attention to you. You're you're actually a hero, and no one understands you. And I was like, that's a very interesting thing because, in some way, right, it is firing the same chemicals in your head as though someone were actually saying it to you in real yep. life. And then the next step of that is that he wrote that into a script, and then we're on set, and Frank Grillo, who's an actual action star, is saying that to him. And I was like, well, this is like very interesting to me and and you know funny but also fascinating and also you can see it as heartbreaking or however you want to see it um so a lot of the project was exploring that stuff in terms of presenting him with what i was able to find out about the truth of what he thinks or thought was a sex trafficking ring you know a lot of that was i'm not a therapist a lot of that was as a someone making a documentary feeling a responsibility to reality yeah, <laughs> and you know <laughs> that it, it just would feel so irresponsible to let all of this st- stuff go unchecked. And so I, I just felt like, well, at the end of this project, I need to do my best to figure out everything I can about what was real and what was not. Some of it is nebulous. You know, he really still wants to hold on to this idea that she was a sex worker. And we, we talked to a lot of people and, it just seems like a lot more nebulous than that. I don't think there was a massive sex trafficking ring. But in terms of like every detail of it, in terms of the private eye who says, well, she was exchanging intimacy for income, you know, it, it, it's a gray area. Paul, I think, was his life was so turned upside down that he was unable to live in this gray area. He needed answers. He needed some kind of framework so that he had a he could arrive at a reality that he could live in and where that took him was what I found so interesting about this story. Yeah, it took him to, like, literally the premiere of, uh, I mean, you follow this thing to the very end. (laughs) And I was like, as, I think it was, like, week four or five, and I was just, I was like, where is he going to, where is this guy going to take? Like, he's going to, 
he's got to see, we've got to see what Paul thinks about it. Like, it's just like, hopefully. And I was like, no, there's no way that can happen because it's too, uh, it's too impossible. So basically the way the math adds up is you probably just finished this project like a week ago, basically two weeks ago. Yeah. A couple, a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Um, it, uh, oh, there. here I go. I'm unfrozen. Uh, it, um, it, we always, I always knew that I wanted, okay, here's a better, yeah. I always knew that I wanted um, the both the some of the response to the show and Paul's response to the show to be baked into the end of the show, and so to do that, we had to figure out an editing schedule with Peacock that allowed us to kind of lock and deliver the first five episodes, edit most of the sixth one, have this premiere screening in December, edit that for like two days, finish that part of it leave a gap for, you know, him to, like, look at some response, try to get him on a talk show, see if anything came out of that. Like, we just kept narrowing down and leaving little gaps in for anything. And then finally, you know, threw in this this one clip of him at, on Jimmy Kimmel at the end and then, deliver, you know, mixed it and delivered it um, mm-hmm. about two weeks before it came out. Yeah, yeah. So uh, so that this was, came out January 22nd. I think we delivered it two weeks earlier. Um, so wild. Yeah. The, um, the response that he gives... <clears throat> when he's watching it, it seems like, and I think this is like the master stroke of, or one of the master strokes of the whole thing is you like, you do love Paul. Like you see in Paul, what it seems to be more and more common right now, which is just dudes being like needing to be the hero and needing to be the um, alpha male. It's really popular right now. The Andrew Tate's, the whatnots. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that gem of a person, but, Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's this whole like uh, <laughs> it's this whole industry, and it's all these dudes who I feel like they don't feel like they have purpose, and they don't feel like they have meaning. And so you can relate to what Paul is going through. He's just make he's just going through fantasies, like he's making it happen in an imaginary world. And sometimes it does get sad when he's like, uh, "There's nothing real." Like that's like, "Oh, there's no real, and it's all just a dream." That part gets a little like tugs at my empathy a little much. But um, the last scene of the the series or after the premiere anyway you talked to him backstage for a second what was that like like what was it like to did you feel nervous about him liking it was that kind of like on one shoulder the whole time that you were putting this whole thing together of like how do you please him peacock the rest of the people involved in this story yeah i mean i there was always a question of how he's going to react when he sees it um he was always fully aware of what the project was. He never thought we were just making his movie or whatever, okay. you know. And so he knew we're going to be shooting. We're going to be shooting scenes from the movie. We're going to be shooting the behind the scenes. We're going to be shooting scenes from his spinoffs. We're going to be shooting interviews. And by you know, and then we're going to be talking to the real people. And that's that clip where I tell him, "Hey, we found Cadillac." You know. So as of I think that was July, um, he's been aware that we're going to have other voices, including people that he thought and thinks are like villainous and so he knew all the elements you know what he wasn't a hundred percent you know what we didn't a hundred percent see eye to eye on was the tone of how kind of this would be as much of an examining of him and his story as it was just letting him tell his story you know and so there's things in there there's awkward moments there's stuff that i knew you know, as much as he was always saying, you can laugh at me. I know I'm a, I was a wimp. I'm a schmuck. It's okay to laugh at me. It's like, well, how's he going to actually react when he sees this? Yeah. Um, on one hand, 
I want to make an honest project. I want to make a project that I feel is aiming for some kind of truth. Yeah. And that's probably my top allegiance. On the other hand, I've known him Paul for 10 years and I consider him a friend and and probably am closer and have a more complex relationship with him than a, a typical documentary filmmaker and a subject where you just come into someone's life and then you step out and you're completely removed. I knew, you know, we, you know, we were, he was texting me constantly for the last decade. Like we would, and I would text back, we would talk, we would, ha- you know, that sequence in the fifth episode, I mean, a lot of it is me being exhausted, exasperated by this process that I chose to do. But we made sure to include some shots of us laughing together uh, and having a good time on set. And like it, it, it's I don't I like the guy. <laughs> it's, it's a complex friendship. So I was like, yeah, is he going to punch me in the face when he's like, oh, wait, this whole thing was a, a trick because um, I don't think the whole thing was a trick. No. I, I think it's more complicated than that. Um, still, I didn't know how he'd react. And so I do wind up I wound up getting way more emotional in that moment than I expected than I ever would want to be on camera but I don't know exactly why I've been trying to figure out exactly why I, I don't know if it was because I probably thought well this is this is like the last time we're going to do this kind of thing and this has been going on for a while or maybe it's because even after all this time he finally sees the show and he's still saying stuff that's better than anything I could write and this is real this is like a real moment it was just very intense it also might have been a little bit of like, I don't know when the dust settles if we're going to have this friendship. Um, who knows, you know, like eventually he could wind up feeling very burned by this whole thing. In the moment, I was very touched by what he said. I thought it was very powerful. You know, I read something where um, a very smart review, um, but his read was that Paul was lying in that moment, that he was hurt and he was just kind of saving face. That's not how I took it. I think, I, t- I think in that moment he, he meant everything he said. Um, yeah. But it was a very uh, po- powerful moment. It really was. I mean, it's uh, and that juxtaposed with say, uh, I think <clears throat> the moment, as I recall, the first three episodes went up first, but I think it's like the second episode um, when you have the introduction of the um, pet psychic and you Mm. she's explaining herself um i would love to know more about her i'm interested just in my own um studies i'd love to to get some answers uh from her but you cut to her face being licked by a horse as she is explaining uh herself and i found that to be one of the funniest things i've ever uh seen (laughs) in quite a while and i was in bed and i was like i rewatched it a few times uh beautiful editing uh what in terms of zooming out well that was on yeah after yeah i'd say that's the clip terry j has been trying to get a tv show since before i knew her she's put together many sizzle reels and pitch presentations and that was from her sizzle reel so we put that clip in and yeah it really made us laugh too as did everything else she said in that sequence (laughs) we're like well we don't want to just be attacking this person um but it's all things she said, and that st- I mean, was in her sizzle reel. I was like, okay, this is how she wants to present herself to the world. And she was embracing, you know, that she's a funny character. She's a kook, kooky person. She said that to me. But she said, I'm a goof. She said that at the premiere. So I felt like it was okay because she yes. seemed okay with that as a way to brand herself because she really wants a TV show. 
you know, this week she's not thrilled with, with the finale. I'm a, I'm aware um, with with how with how she comes off. Um, and I knew that would be the case. Hi, everybody. This is the ad portion of the show. I hope you're enjoying this conversation with none other than Jason Walliner. But I have something to ask you. Do you know that feeling that you get when your crush texts you unexpectedly or when you make that powerful prolonged eye contact with that cute barista at your local coffee shop? Well, guess what? That's how it feels wearing the new limited edition Me Undies Valentine's Day collection. That's right. You can add some heart to your V-Day with MeUndies and get 25% off your first purchase. Plus, get free standard shipping and free returns when you go to MeUndies.com slash valley. You guys know uh, we talk about MeUndies quite a bit. It's all I wear. It's all that is in my underwear drawer, and it's all that will ever be in my underwear drawer if I can help it. But in order to help it, I need you to check out MeUndies for yourself. It's absolutely wonderful. In fact, they also ask, just to keep it fun, uh, how do I keep my relationships fun? What I like to do is I like to get in some Valentine's Day-themed underwear from me undies settle down with my boo and watch a really fun heartfelt sweet awkward uh fascinating documentary series on a streaming platform which one you ask well that's not important right now because for right now what's important is that me undies has a great offer for listeners of the valley cast get 25 percent off your first order and free u.s shipping right to your door you know what i mean because love is supposed to be fun whether you love someone else or just yourself it's usually supposed to be a good time that's why me undies is super comfortable and cute undies bralettes loungewear and more and flirty new prints for this v-day season comfort is sexy so get matching with someone you love or just match with your favorite ball of fur the cutest pics anyone's ever seen available in sizes extra small to 4x they have something for everybody to fall in love with so to get 25 percent off your first order free u.s shipping and to chat with their incredible cheek squad about any questions or sizing concerns go to meundies.com valley to get 25 percent off your first order free u.s shipping and to chat with their incredible cheek squad about any questions or sizing concerns go to meundies.com valley that's meundies.com valley to get 25 percent off your first order plus free shipping now Let's continue our conversation with the wonderful and handsome and beautiful um, Jason Walliner, who uh, I love. So I love him so much. Let's continue what he has to say. Let's see what he has to say. Let's see what I have to say. Let's just see what these little boys say. Do you get um, nervous about that when you're doing this kind of thing? Between this, uh, Borat, subsequent movie film, did, you know, when you're mixing like real life with comedy, does it... Do you get kind of like sheepish? I feel like it takes a certain amount of bravery to be able to put stuff on this big screen and then see how the everything lands. I mean, bravery or like um, sociopathy or weaseliness. Yeah. I don't know. You know, like, I mean, when we were filming with the babysitter and Borat, I was like, oh, this is incredible. This woman doesn't know that millions of people are going to like love her. And that was a nice feeling. When it's someone like Rudy Giuliani, it's like, well, this guy is has committed evil. This guy is like wicked. I, <laughs> I don't give a shit what happens. He's Rudy Giuliani. There's like there were certain people in that, you know, you never want to like ruin anyone's lives. But also, by and large, people are not on hidden cameras. You know, like it's like people, everyone there signed up to be on camera, whether or not they understand all that that implies or how they're revealing themselves is another thing but you know almost everyone in the Borat movie knew they were on camera and and was behaving knowing that this was being filmed i mean with paul i never of course never meant to like ruin his life with carrie j i don't mm-hmm. want to ruin her life she's not happy you know um with 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 episode six 
because we cut to those checks being ripped and that obviously implies through context that Paul was paying her for these readings and he was. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so I, was, so, like, I assumed he was the whole know, time. And, but... and so it's like, all right. Okay. And it's, it's like, well, she doesn't seem to mind that we have her on camera like gleefully accusing someone of murder who I think is completely innocent. Like, so... Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I felt like I included that stuff because, yeah, in episode three, Terry J comes off as she intends to come off as kind of a wacky, kooky, fun person. And then in the editing of this and listening to these hours of tapes between them and in finding out as best we could the truth of what happened to the real Audrey's parents and then watching the stuff again, came to think this one. I didn't go into film Terry J thinking this is the villain. No, no. But just months in the editing room watching it and being like, oh, I don't think she's evil, but this is, I I believe she behaved recklessly. Yeah. <laughs> and I believe, you know, and to watch on camera what I think is someone, like, manipulating a naive or, you know, a, a, an impressionable person and kind of getting him worked up thinking that, his ex-wife was a murderer. I was like, this is this is reckless. This is irresponsible. And in terms of what I was saying before, I felt a responsibility um, to put that in. You know, if there's any service it can provide in, in showing about the dangers of uh, reckless bullshit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the dangers of just having what you want to hear told to you over and over again for, like, a fee uh, is, well, you know... Lo- People do it all the time. It's not the worst yeah. thing, but it's like not people, great either. People do it all the time in so many different forms. Part of this process was me trying to figure out like, okay, if I find out he's really not living in reality in terms of this sex trafficking ring, like what's the harm in that? Like what, what, you know, everyone's living in their own reality to various extents. Um, and, you know, we, we all believe things that can be shown objectively or not true. And there's, myths that we ourselves believe to get through the day yeah at various levels and i was trying to look at at what point does that become dangerous harmful and obviously while we were doing this all the QAnon, pizzagate stuff that would be you know happened years after this but i started to see parallels and luckily paul was i think a generally very harmless example of similar kinds of thinking that you see lead to all this this other stuff that became a very deal in the last few years. No, it's really wild. The um the amount of misinformation and the kind of uh the pipelines people can get into and how quickly the QAnon stuff can take over people's brains and it does always kind of come down to very mythical like undertones. Like it's going to it's good versus evil and it's always uh hidden and the evil forces are so big and the good guys are so small and it's just david and goliath over and over again uh regardless of what the facts are so it's just a wild world basically and i also i want to make sure that and not coming off like there's any judgment toward the people in this documentary because it is like people like this are just what make life fun and interesting and maybe not really rudy giuliani but like people in paul t goldman uh speaking of well, I, I think interesting, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like you have to, I don't know, I find this stuff very interesting and worth looking at in terms of how it reflects back on 
all of us and all this other stuff that that's going on. Yeah. yeah, we all have that uncle that's very much stuck in their like, you know, fantasy world and you see him at the holidays and you're like, oh, OK, yeah, that's where you're at. Great. <laughs> very predictable. Um, the, uh, <laughs> you brought the up with the uh, Rudy Giuliani scene. I have to ask, uh, since you mentioned it, what, how, how did you expect that to be the biggest like story for a while? What was that? Were you there for that? Didn't that blow up for a while, as I recall? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I brought Rudy up in the elevator. Really? <laughs> I, like, I was right there. I, I, I brought him into the room and then went to a, a hidden control room next door. I mean, yeah, we felt like, oh, this is, you know, we wanted to get something like that. We had a lot of ideas. We, we were able to get Rudy to sit down for an interview. He didn't understand what he was sitting down for. And, uh, and then we fled the country. <laughs> <laughs> we went to Romania to shoot the uh, Kazakhstan stuff. So, yeah, no, we felt uh, that was, yeah, we, um, I mean, you know, the timing of it, it just so happened, you know, Rudy went from being just kind of a has-been and a joke and a Trump sycophant, and then he started to get some juice again right around the election because of the Hunter Biden laptop stuff. And so then we just, I think it was fortunate timing that we had this scene with him that we were about to, you know, drop in this movie the weekend before the election. It was just like, uh, you know, it was such a crazy moment in American history, Um a lot of things lined up. Uh, yeah, I mean, that was that, the, uh, the movie really made a splash. Yeah, that was like the same time, around the same time that he was doing, or correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that was the Four Seasons uh, lawn thing. Or is the, are you talking about the 2022 election? That all happened. No, uh, 2020. Yeah, that all happened uh, after that. Yeah. After that, that Rudy, our thing, our movie came out, and then the election happened. And then the Four Seasons thing happened, I think, a few weeks after. So, yeah, no, it was all like, that was kind of like the, then the thing with his hair melting and he was like farting in some <laughs> testimony. It was just like this colossal fall of uh, Rudy Giuliani that was kind of uh, started maybe by our Yeah, our fall and uh, Pratt fall, like a beautiful comedic, um, like written by the stars <laughs> kind of stuff. Um, you're doing this, like, the genre that I don't know what it would be called. It obviously gets cringy and uncomfortable, but I was thinking about just the lack of old traditional comedy movies. Like we don't have, um, there's not a lot of like hangovers and old school movies that are coming out right now. Uh, the, then there's these kind of Nathan Fielder-esque, um, Borat-esque, Paul T. Goldman-esque things coming out, which kind of mix real life and comedy together. And it's kind of pranky, but not really, because you're usually, it's all very nice to the actual people. Do you think this is stuff you're going to be doing for like a long time? Do you see? Because I would love if you did personally, but is this kind of the trajectory that you're? <laughs> I don't know. Okay. I doubt that I'll find another Paul T. Goldman. I do have other things I'm thinking about that use elements of real life and real people in hopefully interesting ways or fresh ways. It's really, I just try to follow my instinct. I also have a couple movies I wrote that are just fully written and more normal movies yeah. <laughs> and uh you know i i just I, I i tend to just follow what excites me um and so i i don't know i mean i i uh i don't you know i don't know that i'll be able to do anything quite like this in terms of taking 10 years finding someone so multifaceted and, and interesting and worth really investing in like this but also at the beginning of this if you told me i was going to spend the next 10 years trying to finish this and shooting on and off and and whatever uh 
I, I don't know how I would have reacted. I didn't I didn't go into this thinking it would be a decade long <laughs> journey. So I'm generally just trying to like stay in touch with what is exciting and interesting to me and uh, and follow that and, and see where it leads. What was the uh, pitch process like for this? I'm assuming that you had a difficult time. I've never uh, experienced that kind of rigorous pitching of going from like this person, this group, this group, this group. And did you just get beaten down by the rejections or did you feel like someone eventually is going to understand the, the, the aw, awesome power of this uh, project? <laughs> Everything I've ever pitched has been mostly rejection. The only thing I ever pitched that did well at all was I went out um, as part of this project with Bob Odenkirk and David Cross uh, recently. And because those guys, Bob's coming off, Better Call Saul, David's, you know, um, in a great place. And I, like, that was the only thing I had that had like multiple offers, had like four places wanted. Everything else, I, um, I go out with something that's exciting to me and I just, I'm lucky if I get one offer. I just scrape by <laughs> and, and uh, you know, for a million different reasons. But for this thing, I was first trying to do it as a movie, but I wanted to do these dramatized scenes and I wanted to start Paul. And so it would cost, I don't know, our budget was like, it was over a million bucks. I think it was never something you could just do for a few hundred thousand bucks because there were like, there was like a, a movie length script. So you had to shoot it like a low budget movie, not like a, just a documentary with an interview or whatever because of the way I wanted to do it. So I was able to shoot some of the interview stuff with very little money that was given to me by this company that's one of the producers on it, this company Caviar. And we showed that around and I said, look, this is a really interesting guy. I want to shoot these you know these scenes with him and we shot those auditions that was another thing that was basically free to shoot and still it took years and finally hulu said okay we shot the pilot which became you know the first episode and then hulu said no but that helped us because we had a pilot now so i could show people this is actually how it's going to work this is what it's going to feel like this will, you know this is what those scenes, i had to describe those scenes to people that sometimes don't have a lot of imagination or a lot of um you know risk-taking <laughs> tendencies and but now i had scenes i could show them and and say this is what it's gonna look like this is gonna, it's gonna feel like still you know everyone said no at that time except quibi god bless them and then you know i wasn't sure about quibi but i loved the enthusiasm of the execs there but i was like oh i don't i really don't want people to watch this on their phones but it you know seemed like our only option and then i but then i got the borat thing so i paused it for about a year and a half and then quibi went under and then, and then I was able to show, you know, and then the Borat movie and Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg coming on, just all these elements that, you know, successful, famous people absolutely help you sell something. Coming off a successful thing like the Borat movie helps you sell something. And then, you know, so then we went around one more time and I was like, this is what I want to do. I want to finish this. And we had those elements. We had the pilot. I could show people how it would feel and... Still, it's a lot of luck and a lot of begging and a lot of months of negotiating in terms of, you know, getting a budget that we feel like we could do it at. And, you know, it was that's, you know, part of why it took a decade to, to really figure out. Um, yeah, man, that's uh, it sounds exhausting and insane. Is that the, the pilot that you showed? Is that the pilot that eventually <laughs> uh, went up? Is it, did that change at all? Um, the first episode is a version of the pilot we shot in 2017. We cut out a handful of scenes um, just for pacing and, and flow. Just watch, sitting with it for a few years, watching it, being like, you can cut this scene, that scene. 
Um, so yeah, I mean, we have 50 deleted scenes of, of Paul's stuff that a lot of them are really good, but just some of them felt redundant. Some of them like legally were a little too dicey. Um, but we have, so, we, we shot so much more than we could fit in this show. Do you uh, <laughs> um, have off the top of your head, like a favorite, uh, like deleted scene that didn't quite make it in? Yeah. That you can comfortably there is one. speak about. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, everything in the Paul T. Goldman Chronicles is really great. I'd like to, I'm going to try to release those on, online. Um, and the Dreamcatcher's extended cut is, is really great, I think. Um, but there's one scene where he meets Audrey's parents. And it was one of my favorite things in the book because he meets her dad, who on paper seems like a very nice, lovely guy asking questions talking to johnny about science and paul just can't stand the guy and he wrote the book years before the guy died tragically um but i just it's really you should read the book it's really interesting and fascinating and funny how much paul hates the guy who just seems to be perfectly nice and so we just we shot this scene with him meeting her parents and he's just talking to the camera as they're like walking down the beach about like, can you believe what an asshole this guy is? And the guy's just being nice to the kid. <laughs> it's, it was really a, a good scene. Um, but we just couldn't find a place for it. It was for a long time. It was in the last episode, but it just felt so jarring to go from that to the, to the murder suicide. It just felt like too much. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so, and I, and I, and we had to lock them in order. If I knew that it wasn't going to work in the finale, I probably would have put it in the first episode because it would have, been good to know who these characters are yeah. and have it not just come out of field that they become characters in the story. But but the way we edited it, we, we had to lock every episode in order. So by the time we finished the fifth episode, the finale was just in piece in 100 pieces. It was like an hour and 40 minutes. It was like completely different than what, you know. So we really had to figure it out as we went along and we couldn't go back. When we realized something, we couldn't go back and change something earlier. So we, you know... Um, that's probably that's probably why it didn't make it in. Yeah. Um, there's so many. I mean, the moments where like the actors are working with him. Um, uh, the one that pops into my mind is the guy who's uh, just. He seems they're all charismatic, but he's like he's really he's in it. He's doing the. He's gonna be the. Oh, that's weird. The guy's doing the. <laughs> Ludwig. Yeah, yes. that guy. Uh, I was like, I want to <laughs> yeah, hang out with yeah. that dude. He seems great, but. Uh, all of them were very like patient and engaged and trying to ask all of these um, pieces of you know information for their characters, I guess. But then there's this moment where you, your actor, ends up not clicking with um, Paul. Did that? How do you handle that level of awkwardness? How do you handle that? Because I would have to go take a shower and not talk to anybody for three days. <laughs> I knew what I was getting into. I just had to embrace it. And I, I went into this and I told the actors, I was, you know, I was like, I, I told most of the actors, I was like, we're going to, this is not a prank. We're going to shoot his scenes. It's going to be him. We're going to see what happens. Sometimes it'll be awkward. Sometimes it'll be interesting. Sometimes it'll be moving. I think it'll all be, you know, I think it'll all be interesting. <laughs> and so, um, you know, that scene in the courtroom is real. He told me he wanted me to do it. I told him I hate acting. I don't want to do it. I, we hired Jake Regal, who was great, um, and just let it be awkward. I knew that would, you know, an awkward moment on set can make for a good moment in the show. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so Jake Regal was a very good sport and just rolled with it. But I made sure to not meet him before 
uh, we're on camera. So that moment that he gets in a position, you see two of us wearing suits in the same frame <laughs> is the moment I met him. Um, because I wanted it to just be as awkward <laughs> as it would be <laughs> because I didn't want to, you know, a lot of times in life you try to sweep awkwardness under the rug, but in this type of project, um, it's about facing it head on and accepting it and embracing it and, oh. and seeing what happens in these moments. And you can, yeah, there are a lot of moments in there were very uncomfortable on set, but you know, I, I, I knew that's, that's what I was trying to do yeah oh no yeah you successfully make it feel like you're just taking everyone including the viewers and just putting them in a vat of awkward like cringe and just letting it marinate for an hour and i i could do that for like i'm a bodybuilder when it comes to cringe and awkward comedy and i can just like uh in in when it happens in real life same thing it's the, it brings me so much joy when there's just a palpable awkwardness uh and awkward silences i can be a big fan of which is not a good thing i guess if you're <laughs> doing podcasts a lot uh but it's the best and uh, i just yeah i was like i don't know how these did you get feedback from the actors afterward were they generally like that was a great time we loved it like that you didn't have any freakouts i'm assuming from anybody no freakouts everyone uh everyone was very cool about it the one moment i mean look you see that dr k scene um and that was extremely awkward. And that actress, Megan Roberts, who's so good in that scene and real, um, she like looked a little shaken afterwards. And I, I talked to her a bit afterwards to make sure she was okay. Cause that was like, we were really, I mean, that might be the most uncomfortable scene I've ever Which seen. Which one? What was uh, this? On camera. And Remind just, me. Oh, in the doctor's office with, with the uh, yes. sex worker in the doctor's office. And he's like trading medicine for sexual favors um and i knew what i wanted to just let it play out and see what happened but it was it's deeply uncomfortable to watch and it was 10 times more so in person and so i did talk to her afterwards to make sure she was okay but she's been posting about the show and she's psyched on it and and uh you know she <laughs> she's good but uh yeah i mean that was what, what you see is what you get that's that's what that filming that i think was. that might be the only time uh, in the series where it cuts to you and you're looking at the monitors and it's like you see your hand just go up by you're like oh my god this is so tough to just you're like as a viewer you're just, yeah. you, your heart goes out for every single person involved but then at the same time i'm like keep it rolling just keep it keep it going uh yeah and, and i asked for it you know i i wanted to do this like I, i'm not no one forced me to do this like he didn't no one held me at gunpoint so it's you know i i deserved it yeah uh <laughs> did you i mean do you feel now that you've done this for the past 10 years that you've worked on this do you, is it what you imagined in the beginning did you have an idea when you started out like this is going to be this mix of all of this or was it as you went along and now that it's done do you go this is the greatest thing i've ever done do you go like i i made it <laughs> I'm I'm proud of it. I'm proud of how it came out. I had the, you know, I basically the idea in, in how it works was, was always part of it, but it did evolve along the way. But I always knew I wanted to have a behind the scenes element, but that became a bigger element once we got this documentarian friend of mine named Jason Tippett who ran that third camera and would just find these beautiful framings and then walk away or just like, you know, let it roll on backstage conversations. I knew I wanted to use that interview, that kind of, Errol Morris ripoff interview that's the backbone of the show. I knew I wanted that to be kind of Paul narrating and taking us through. That's like hours and hours of stuff that we shot in 2014. Um, 
you know what I didn't know was how it would end exactly. I had ideas for how it would end. I was originally picturing kind of a much darker ending and but I, I wanted to follow what was real and what actually happened. And Paul in that sound booth while we were recording the voices for the Darling Street Detectives, his dog detective show, I just asked him flat out, like, why why do you do this? And he winds up giving this like soliloquy that's more moving and eloquent than anything I've seen in any movie ever. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, Well, you just gave us the ending and I had no idea that would happen. And one can read into that any way they want. I've, se- I've seen some interesting takes online of, of people, you know, not buying what he's selling at the end. And I think, and that's a fine way to read into it too. I mean, that's, I wanted this to be something that people can have loads of different opinions on, um, but also not be about the destruction of this man. That wouldn't mm-hmm. be an interesting uh, project for me to just like take a guy and, and and destroy him uh so hopefully people aren't taking that from it that they're saying I'm, I'm trying to do something more complex than yeah, that I, I i think people seem to get it i haven't seen has the response been good so far i mean it seems like people have been very uh receptive it's been amazing yeah ever since the finale aired it kind of blew up and people are like so nice about it yeah no it's been i think people a lot of people were kind of holding waiting until they saw where it was going to kind of publicly declare what they felt. But as, as, since Sunday, since the finale came out, it's just been this massive wave of really moving things people have said. Um, so I didn't realize kind of even watching it because I, by the time we finished it, I knew where it was going. So I was like, oh, I, I assume people could kind of enjoy the discomfort and not knowing and the questions. But I think a lot of people did need to see how it ended before feeling like they could talk about it because mm-hmm. they didn't want to endorse something if it was going to end in kind of a, a mean-spirited uh, or bad feeling yeah, way. Yeah, that's, uh, that probably was a smart move um, on their part, I imagine. <laughs> now, as we're... Uh, <laughs> yeah, probably. We'll wrap up a little bit here, but I have um, one last question, which is, did you... Um, or next to last, whatever, we'll, we'll, we'll wind it down, but... Um, were you at any point scared for your life that you were actually getting involved in an international uh, sex trafficking ring? Were you? Did you ever feel like you were being followed, or that? Um, or did, were you disappointed to find out that maybe that wasn't necessarily the case? Definitely not disappointed, and definitely scared. Yeah, yeah I did. I never thought Paul was like insane. I was like, well, there's a chance there's something here. This. Uh, this, you know, kind of shady facts asking for expedited passports. I was like, yeah, this could be something. And he had been hyping up Cadillac, a.k.a. Royce Rocco, for so many years that I was like, even if this isn't a massive sex trafficking ring, which I, I thought it probably wasn't, but I was like, oh, this guy could still be Bad guy. Uh, a shady guy, a criminal, a dangerous guy. He lives in, like, it was like a very true detective-y kind of, you know, dirt highway to get there it was like you know <laughs> it was it was scary going in what up as soon as we sat down with him you know you you know he's very friendly he's very friendly i don't know you know i don't know his whole life but i didn't feel like i was in danger anymore once i met him uh yeah the person you're referring to cadillac that what area of florida was that in by the way 
Uh, town called Indian Town. Oh, right. It's Indian near. Town, I, I think it's reading. near like Jupiter. 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 Yeah. Okay. I'm from yeah. Florida, and so uh, when I, anytime Florida is in a documentary, I'm like, oh, this is going to be interesting. And then Cadillac ends up being like every guy that every grown man that you know uh, in that area of Florida, and he also just seemed like a guy who liked to party a lot, but he didn't seem like a the most terrifying person in the world. As the, that's basically that was my guy. assessment. Is uh, yeah, no, I mean, I just being down there for. The four days or five days that we shot that stuff, I was like, oh, this is this whole place. Like, I was staying in Fort Lauderdale, and I was like, there's just like a sweaty, horny vibe to this whole place. Yes. <laughs> and, and, and I was just like, yeah, we were just like having like tropical drinks and like sitting at this bar and eating fish tacos. And I was surrounded by guys that look like Cadillac mm-hmm. that just kind of like bursting, bursting out of these collared shirts. Yep. And like looking like they're gonna go go home and have swinger parties, and you know, good for them. It's like I, you know, like it just that was the vibe I got, um, and that's probably what was going on. Yeah. You know, like I just think if you're, I don't want to say Paul. I don't think Paul was wrong about everything, but I, 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 I think for who he is, I don't know that the nuance of like a sex party or that lifestyle where maybe there is some money exchanged maybe there you know there is some gray area i think it's easier like i was saying to like just make it a criminal enterprise sex trafficking ring what have you than to kind of exist in this yeah world that that seems like a lot of people exist in down there especially oh definitely uh so many and it also just feels to me like paul had um it's like the level of paranoia that he had got funneled into the wrong ideas, but I don't know that his impulses were always that off. It seems like, no, uh, this woman was definitely not right for you. Uh, that later became your ex-wife. That's the other thing. That's the other thing I wanted to make clear is that, he, you know, he's not crazy. This was not based on nothing. There's a lot of, you know, from what, the people we talked about, there was a lot of damage in other relationships that she was in and a lot of similar stories. And, you know... I wanted to make that that clear that it you know it 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 was not just something he made up to get revenge on on a fully innocent person who wronged him at the same time they didn't date for very long you know this mm-hmm. whole aspect of my beloved wife they this was not a fairy tale romance I don't think these people really ever knew each other I think it was transactional um always and not about love and paul admit admitted that and and at a certain point um that he wanted this idea of a of what he was raised to think was the like perfect family he wanted a typical life and he was trying to make that work and uh didn't go about it yeah in a way that led to led to good results and and wound up with a, a just this person who i think was living in an entirely different reality than Paul. Yep. Do you, uh, you also, I mean, you gave him the I love you from his dad or the, both of that, like that final button at the end of paternal approval. Yeah. Well, that was never going to be part of you. That happened at the very end. We were recording a voiceover and you see it on camera where he's just like, man, maybe he'll, Express love, wouldn't that be novel? I was like, huh? <laughs> and I had met his father, Gerald, uh, eight years earlier. Perfectly nice guy. Friendly guy. Um, but then Paul just started talking on camera about how he 
he never heard his father say that he loved him. I was like, well, that is heartbreaking. I'm not a psychologist. I don't know how that affects someone. But to me, this story has always been about someone seeking love and approval. And something about that clicked. But maybe that had an impact. Yeah. And it was always the plan. Paul was always asking, can we go show him some of the show? He's 94. Can we please show him the show? And so... Before we did that, he had, he told me that he never got an I love you. I was like, well, let's <laughs> let's see. It was a little whatever of me to force the issue on camera, but I hope it was appreciated. I didn't, ma- you know, I, I never meant it to seem like Paul was unloved and that made him crazy. I don't think he was unloved. I don't think he's crazy, but it felt like another interesting thing, which has resonance in our world where... You look at guys, you look at these kind of guys who have tried to will themselves on the rest of the planet, like Donald Trump and Elon Musk, where it's like, these guys are just so desperate for love. And both of them, uh, coincidentally or not, have these famously kind of unloving dads. And I was like, well, that's an interesting (laughs) thing (laughs) that maybe maybe there is something to that. I mean, look, dads throughout history have not been very loving uh to their kids maybe that's something that's just changing in like this generation where it's like normal for a dad to uh show love to (laughs) to their children but i thought it was an interesting angle on exploring what we were exploring oh yeah it's the whole uh thing because and it also i think has to do with again going back to that like average guy right now who doesn't feel like they like they imagine like Paul, like doesn't imagine that his life is like what his dad had. He's not doesn't have that like white picket fence in the traditional family, and so he, they all feel like uh, they got to right. get somewhere. And uh, it's uh, beautiful and tragic and wonderful. So anyway, I won't keep you any longer, uh, <laughs> Jason. Thank you for chatting with uh, me a little bit. Can you? Do you want to like plug anything or besides obviously plug away to Paul T. Goldman? But um, I got nothing. Yeah, no. Just if you like, if you like this show, if you not sure if you like this show, but it made you feel <laughs> something you can't put your finger. I don't know. Uh, just uh, yeah, tell people about the show. There's there's no marketing for it. There's no they didn't pay for any ads. So all we are relying on is people telling their friends about it. So great. Spread the word if you if you want. Do. <laughs> That's it. Awesome, man. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. I hope you have a great rest of your week. Thank you so much for talking to me. That was so fun. Absolutely. Thanks, man.